Well, good morning. If I have not had a chance to meet you, my name is Mike. I'm the student pastor here at Central. And uh, I get the privilege of being able to bring uh, the word to you this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. There is uh, a lot in this passage, uh, and we have a lot to get into this morning. So uh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you the heads up right now. There's going to be times where maybe it feels like we're drinking from a fire hydrant, right? But, but, uh, we're gonna, but Lord willing, we're going to we're gonna get through this. We're going to see what is it that God has for us this morning. I know some of us, you know, it's kind of that in-between stage, right? Like, you have to sleep in a little bit more, but it's also like, man, I'm hungry, and I'll wait till a barbecue later, so like, where am I at? But hey, if we're all together, we can get through this, right? If we're all together, we can get, so you, you with me? All right, praise the Lord. Here we go. So if you've been with us over the past several uh, months, we've been going verse by verse through the book of First Peter. Now, uh, then uh, during that, so we started out in 1 Peter, and then in the month of October, we kind of jumped over uh, to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and we uh, did another series, and we kind of have jumped back into 1 Peter starting last week. So with that, it may be kind of difficult at times to remember, okay, what is the context, right? Where are we at in 1 Peter? What, what, what exactly? It's, kind of, it's like jumping into a conversation, like mid-conversation. So where are we? What, what's going on? So I want to kind of give a little bit of a refresh for people and kind of catch everyone up to where we're at. All right, so Peter is writing uh, his letter to a group of Christians. He's writing to Christians who are in the midst of suffering. But not just suffering, but they are suffering ultimately because of their faith in Christ. And he is writing to them to encourage them to keep the faith, don't give up, keep pressing forward. Now, just as a side note, I think it's important that we understand that whenever we see Peter talking about suffering in this letter, in particular in the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, he's not talking about general suffering. Right? And he's not talking about general suffering such as difficult seasons of life or, or losing a loved one. Which Now, the principles that he shares absolutely can apply to those things. But his primary focus is for, his, is for Christians who are suffering because of their faith. And for some of us, we may think, well, that doesn't seem to apply to me. But I want you to understand that we live in a culture that is get, becoming increasingly more polarized. Increasingly more polarized, and because of this, it is becoming more and more difficult for Christians and professing Christians to be able to stand on the fence. It's becoming more and more difficult for us to live our faith in private and no longer take stances on biblical issues. But this is not new to the Christian life. Around the world right now, we have brothers and sisters who are meeting in private because to be caught professing the name of Jesus would cost them their life. Research, the Center for Study of Global Christianity, says that 90,000 Christians are martyred every year. That's an equivalent of six every minute. So within the next 10 seconds, someone have given their life because of the name of Jesus. And let's be honest, this is something that we need to understand, that as we pursue God's wants for God's worlds, it is naturally going to put us at odds with people who have a different view. It's going to naturally put us at odds with people who disagree with the scriptures. They disagree with where we stand. So the question is this. How do we handle persecution because of our faith? How do we handle persecution? How do we press forward? How do we be bold with the gospel while at the same time enduring the suffering that will come as a result of it? See, sometimes you can do all the right things and it still be returned with evil. 
Sometimes you can do all the right things. You can do all the things we've talked about in the previous chapters. Right? You can pursue peace with others. You can submit to governing authorities. You can bless those who curse you. And still not change the fact that you're suffering. Not only that, but you're suffering, you're suffering not in spite of your good deeds, but you're actually suffering, suffering because of your good deeds. So what do we do? How do we keep faith? How do we endure? It's from this context that Peter jumps into verse 13 of chapter 3. As we read that this morning, I encourage you to stand as we read from 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13 through 22. The Holy Spirit says to us, his word this morning now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you will be blessed have no fear of them nor be troubled but in your hearts honor christ the lord is holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior or in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a, clear, for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven heaven it is at the right hand of God with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him if you would pray with me father we thank you for your word we thank you for the time that we have together father we know that your word says that your it will accomplish that which you have set for it to accomplish so father we ask that your word will accomplish your will in our hearts and in our lives this morning we ask this in the name of your son Jesus amen you can go ahead and grab a seat So how do we endure suffering for the cause of Christ? How do we press forward? There's three things that Peter gives us here in this passage. And the first thing I want us to see is that we must have a greater perspective. A greater perspective. In verse 13, Peter asks this question. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? There's There's no answer given. There's no answer given here. And that's because the answer is assumed in the question. The answer is assumed. The answer that is assumed is no one. There is no one to harm us if we are zealous for what is good. But there's a problem with that. And the problem is this, is that Peter is writing to people for the purpose of that, the fact that they are suffering for doing what is good. Right? He's writing to people who are, they are in the midst of suffering. They are being harmed while they are zealous for being good. So the question is, why would Peter ask this? Is Peter trying to suggest that their suffering isn't real, that there's no one coming after them, that they're imagining it? What is Peter trying to understand? It's like Peter's audience, when they hear this, their natural response would be, well, Peter, there's actually a lot of people, to be honest with you. What does he mean by this? What is he trying to to, to get across? We We know that Peter is also aware of this because the very next verse, he says, but even if you suffer for righteousness sake, then later in the letter, he will talk about suffering for doing good. Earlier in the letter, he talks about suffering for doing good. The whole point of the letter is writing to Christians who are suffering for doing good. This is a common theme in Paul's letter, 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
This is even a common theme in Jesus' teachings. So what do we do with this? With so much of the Bible, in particular the New Testament, not speaking on the possibility of suffering, but on the certainty of suffering, what do we do? What's the purpose of Peter's rhetorical question here? What does he mean? What is the point that he's trying to get across? I mean, surely Peter knows that these people, there are people who will harm them. And I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of confusing verses in this passage we have this morning. I'd like to thank Pastor Ethan for assigning this one to me. There's a lot of confusing verses, but I'll tell you that verse 13 is probably the most perplexing. It's probably the most perplexing. So what do we do? Here's a good Bible reading tip for you. You ready? Whenever you get to a verse that seems confusing, you will most likely, the tool to understanding it is going to be in studying the verses around it. Right? If you study the verses around it, eventually it'll get you to the bullseye of what the verse you're reading actually means. In fact, this is even more clear when we see that the very first word of verse 13 is the word now. Other translations will say the word and. Ultimately, in the Greek, it is a conjunctive word. It is meant to attach one statement to a previous statement. Well, what, so what does that mean? It means this, is that the rhetorical question in verse 13 is prompted by the verses that come before it. So in order for us to understand why he asks this question, we need to go back to verses 10 through 12 and see what exactly is going on here. What, can, what is it in verses 10 through 12 that will clue us in on what Peter means in verse 13? You with me? Yep. All right. We're on a roll. Okay. Some of you, if you were here last week, you know that Pastor Ethan went through verses 10 through 12, and you're like, hey, didn't we talk about this last week? And I'll say, you are so, you're paying attention, and that's good. I'm glad. But yes, we did, and it's important that we don't forget it. If you were here last week, Pastor Ethan shared something that I want to make sure that I reiterate to us this morning. If you want to understand the New Testament, you must understand the Old Testament. If you want to understand the New Testament, it is pivotal that you understand the Old Testament. In particular, it is very helpful if you can understand the Psalms. Here in verses 10 through 12, Paul, or sorry, it's not Paul, Peter, is directly quoting from Psalm 34. He's directly quoting from Psalm 34. In particular, Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. And what you'll find, especially as we get to the end of this passage, is Psalm 34 is the framework from which Peter uses to explain this. So to kind of summarize, if you, if you don't understand Psalm 34, you will not understand 1 Peter 3. If you don't understand Psalm 34, you will have a hard time understanding 1 Peter chapter 3. So, what is Psalm 34? What do we have here? Psalm 34 is written by David. David is on the run. He's hiding in a cave when he writes this psalm. He's hiding in a cave because he's running for his life because King Saul and his armies are seeking to kill him. And you're like, well, this is a shift of pace. What's going on? Why are they seeking to kill David? It's because God has anointed David to be the next king over Israel. God's plan for David's life has been established. David is pursuing God's wants for his life, and this is putting him at odds with people who would want the contrary. Do you see the application here? You see that David, in pursuing God's will, is now having to suffer because it is inviting harm. So this absolutely is applicable to Peter's audience, and it's applicable to us today. The major theme of Psalm 34 is David praising God Praising God for his, for his constant presence, even in the midst of turmoil. Psalm 34, verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, 
and he delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, the poor, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Verse 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Then as you get to the tail end of Psalm 34, what you'll find is that much of the psalm is David contrasting the experience of the righteous person and the wicked person. In particular, David is contrasting how God delivers one and condemns the other. How God redeems the righteous and condemns the wicked. Starting in Psalm 34, verse 19, it says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. That's an important verse. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. You see this, you see this contrasting taking place? See how God delivers the righteous from affliction, but affliction will slay the wicked, and how the Lord redeems the life of his servants, and none of them who take refuge in him will be condemned, but those who hate the righteous will be condemned. You see this contrasting taking place, right? Also keep in mind that David is in the midst of suffering for doing good. Even David, when hearing Peter say this, who is there to harm you? Even David would be like, well, I can give you a list, Right? So what's the point of this? You're probably sitting there, all right, Mike, what are we talking about? Like, are we in 1 Peter? Are we in Psalm? What's going on? Here's what I want us to understand. In Psalm 34, David is suffering at the hands of man. But throughout the psalm, he keeps this perspective. He keeps this perspective, and he's reminding himself and reminding us that it is better to suffer the unjust wrath of man now than to suffer, suffer the just wrath of God for eternity. That is what David is saying. I would rather suffer the unjust wrath of man here than to suffer the just wrath of God there. Amen. That is the entire point. And it is from this context that Peter then presents the question, now, who is there to harm you? You see, it's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of perspective. This world can do a lot to you. Some of you in the seat, you hear me say that, and you say, amen, you know that this world can strip you of much of, that, much of what you hold dear. This world can take your house. This world can take your job. This world can take your loved ones, your kids, your, excuse me, your spouse. This world can take your health. This world can take your job. This world can take your good name and your reputation and run it through the dirt. As, it call, as people call you a bigot or hateful or homophobic or they speak other lies about you. The world can take much from you, but David is saying and Peter is saying that they can't take what really matters. That's the whole point. For those who have their faith in Jesus, what harm is this in comparison to what harm, what the alternative would be? See, Peter is encouraging suffering believers by reminding them that there is nothing and no one that can cause ultimate harm because our eternity is secured by Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18. For this light, momentary affliction, I love the way he says that, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, the encouragement for the believer, the encouragement for the Christian is not that suffering will not come. 
The encouragement for the Christian is that my ultimate security is found in Jesus, and the suffering, while it will come, it will not last. That is where the encouragement for the Christian is, that this suffering is real. It hurts, but it is not forever. And a million years from now, when I'm standing before the throne of God, I will not remember the pain that afflicts me now. Just listen to the promises of, of, of God's word, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Some of the best promises in all the Bible are found in Romans 8. Starting in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the perspective of the Christian. This is what our eyes are fixed on. We are not putting our hope in right now. We put our hope in eternity. We put our hope in eternity. And I will tell you this, it is impossible, not just hard, impossible, to walk through this life as a Christian if you do not have this perspective. It's impossible to be faithful to the commands of Scripture if you do not have this perspective. When Peter says, who is there to harm you? He's applying Psalm 34 and reminding these suffering believers and reminding us today that for those who are in Christ, all suffering is temporary. So in reality, who really is there to harm you? What's the worst they can do? Send you to your father? For, see, for those who are in Jesus, this life is the closest thing to hell that you will ever experience. But the contrary is also true. For those who do not have a saving relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, this life is the closest thing to heaven they will ever experience. And the wrath of man pales in comparison to the wrath of God. Which brings us to our second point. Our first thing is that we have a greater perspective. The second point is that we have a greater fear. Verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. See, after encouraging these suffering Christians, he encourages them, he comforts them, now he exhorts them, he gives them a command. And what is that command? The command is simple. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In light of the fact that these people, the people who oppose you, they will come against you, you should not be afraid of them. And man, if there is a message that the church needs to hear today, it is this. Do not be afraid of what others may say about you or even do to you. Do not be afraid. You see, the presence of threats and the presence of the possibility of suffering should not cause us to shrink back from the good work that God has called us to do. It's too important. 
It's far too important. The fear of what might happen should never, should never drive us to shrink back. I, I, I'm a big hockey fan. And some of you are like, right? Hockey? I am. I'm a big hockey fan. And there's a saying in hockey that, that a two-point lead is the most dangerous lead in hockey. Why is this? The reason is, is because once a team gets up two points, the tendency is to, okay, we're going to kind of sit back and we're going to play defense. And ultimately what you find is the thing that got them that two-point lead, they stop doing. And then the other team scores. Now they have momentum. They score again. And then it falls apart. And why is this? It's because they're afraid to lose. They allow that to dictate their behavior. And as, the, as Christians, we cannot allow our fear of loss to keep us from doing what the Lord has called us to do. So you and I are very fortunate that we live in a country where your profession of faith, where we live in a country where your faith in Jesus most likely will not cost you your life. Now, like we said earlier, that's not a reality for most of the world, but here in America, this is, this is the case. Your faith in Jesus may not cost you your life, but I, will understand, I want you to understand this, that your faith in Jesus, when actually applied, may very well cost you your job. It may very well cost you relationships. It may very well cost you your reputation. As people say things about you and run your name through the dirt and label you a bigot. This is a terrifying thought, if we're honest. There are people that I care about deeply, and you may be able to relate to this. There are people I care about deeply who do not speak to me, not because we had some big falling out, but because they know where I stand on certain biblical truths. And does it hurt? Yes. Of course it hurts. Does does the thought of losing certain things that I hold dear because of my faith in Jesus give me anxiety at times? Yes. Does the thought that it may be very likely in the near future in my lifetime that I may preach something from a pulpit that may cost me my job or put me in prison. Yes, it's a reality. And it's for this very reason that many people, rather than risk these precious things, choose to simply shrink back and live their faith in private. See, many Christians are not bold in their faith, not because they don't believe it to be true, but because they're afraid of what may happen. I want to be very clear this morning that this is a natural response. It's natural to be fearful of what others may say about you, what others may do to you, especially as we live in a day of cancel culture where one stance for truth will get you called by HR. One stance of truth can cost you an important relationship. And nobody wants that. But please hear what Scripture says to you and to me this morning. Do not be afraid. You may be saying, well, Mike, that's great. But you saying, don't be afraid, doesn't make me not afraid. Right? The the best example of this I can think of is, you know, husbands, maybe you can relate. But there's times where, (laughs) I hear a a no-no. Husbands, you know, there's times maybe where your wife is overwhelmed. The kids are going crazy. You know, know, all these different things. And you, you, you love your wife and you want to help her and encourage her. And the thought that that you think is, man, what would be best for her is if she just kind of calmed down. (laughs) So you lovingly say, sweetheart, just calm down. I will tell you, if you have not made this mistake, don't. 
Don't. Because why? What does it do? What's the wife's response? Oh, you know what? Now that you said that, I feel so calm now. In fact, the opposite is true. They actually get worse. And this is kind of the same premise, right? When I say do not be afraid, when Scripture says do not be afraid, you're like, oh, thank you. Now I'm not. And see, and Peter knows this, right? And this is why we get to verse 15, where Peter says, do not be afraid of them, but do this. And he's not simply just providing an alternative. What he's doing is he's providing a remedy. And what is that remedy? But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. It's interesting that Peter says this. He says, in your hearts, honor Christ as holy. That word holy meaning set apart, distinct. See, Peter doesn't say, make Jesus your Lord. Jesus already, Peter goes about assuming this. We need to understand. Jesus is already Lord. He doesn't need you to make him Lord. The problem is that we don't regard him as holy. That we're totally fine having Jesus as one of many lords in our lives. But it's very possible for a lot of us to have Jesus as a Lord in our life and not the Lord of our life. And Peter's trying to help us understand that there's one throne on the heart of man. And that seat belongs to Jesus. Not your wife, not your husband, not your kids, not your job, not your finances, not the opinions of others. It belongs to Jesus. And Peter's referring here, again, to the Old Testament, but this time he's referring to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 through 13. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Listen to this next part. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. See, the reason we don't fear man is because we fear God more. And a right fear of God overwhelms the fear of anything else. Let God be your fear. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. See, one of the reasons we fear man so much is because we fear God so little. And the reason we fear God so little is because we just, if we're honest, we just don't know him. We don't know who he is. In Psalm 34, remember, David said, I would rather be an enemy of man than an enemy of God. David says, I'll take that any day of the week. Now, when Scripture talks about this idea of fearing God or the fear of God, maybe some of us is like, ugh, like fearing God. I don't want to fear God. I want to love God. But I think it's important for us to understand, what does the Bible mean when it says this? I think this is a good definition for you. Fearing God is this. It's, it's, ultimately, it's the awe, the reverence, and the weight that overcomes a believer when they have a correct understanding of who God is. It's the awe, reverence, and weight that overcomes a believer when they have a correct understanding of who God is. Everything we do as Christians, hear me, everything we do should be in light of our knowledge of who God is. Also note, where does this honoring of Christ as Lord take place? Not in the mind of a person. Not in the lips of a person. In the heart of a person. It's not simply an acknowledgement. It's not simply a mental awareness. It is inward devotion. Inward commitment. It is the inward heart of a person. And here's what we see. Is that you see that the inward devotion is what determines your fears. See, what you are devoted to inwardly will determine what you are fearful of externally. And what you find is whatever, the inverse is true. Whatever you are the most fearful of is an indicator of what you are the most devoted to. 
And oftentimes, when we think about standing for truth, standing for what Christ has called us to stand for, pursuing his purpose in our life, and we're afraid of doing so, it is very likely that it's because we're inwardly devoted to the wrong things. Ultimately, this inward devotion leads to a righteous fear of God, which overcomes our fear of man, and this eventually will lead to what Peter says next. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You see, inward devotion naturally leads to outward declaration. And the declaration of the Christian life is one thing, hope. In a world that is hopeless, the church is hopeful. But again, what is our hope in? Our hope isn't in now. Christians should have hope. Our fear of God gives us hope. In 2014, Lifeway Research conducted a study in which they surveyed Americans about the idea of hope and hopelessness. And there's a, the, the responses are interesting. 40% of Americans say that they feel hopeless at least some of the time. What does this mean? It means that we live in a world that desperately needs reasons for hope. But what's funny is that if you, they then ask, what are the things you find your hope in? And this is in order from the, thing, the number one thing they find their hope in all the way down. Number one, they say they find their hope in relationships. Secondly, they find their hope in financial stability. Thirdly, children. After that is opportunities, whatever that means. After that is my talent and abilities. Another study conducted by Pew Research in 2017 asked Americans what provides them with a sense of meaning. Number one, family. Number two, career. Number three, money. Number four, spirituality and health. Number five, friends. What does this show you? Why do I say this? What does this show? It shows us that the majority of Americans, and most likely the majority of the people in this room, find their hope and their meaning in things that can be taken like that. They can be here today, gone tomorrow. And what does the evidence of life show us? When, you just, when we open our eyes, what does we see as we see this is that because these things are so temporary and people know it, they live in constant fear of losing it. Constant fear of losing it. And they will do whatever it takes to protect it. See, the problem with so many Christians today, including myself at times, is that we worry about the exact same things the world worries about. And because we worry about the exact same things the world worries about, our hope is the exact same thing that the world hopes in. And because of that, there's nothing about our hope that is peculiar. And we wonder why people aren't interested in the gospel because they look at your life, they look at the things that stress you out, and they say, man, your relationship with Jesus doesn't make you any different than me. You say this provides hope to you. Clearly it doesn't. So I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. See, the Christian is not exempt from having fears about these things, but the Christian should have a greater fear that drowns out these other fears. The Christian is more concerned about their standing before God than their standing before anyone else. I'm more concerned about God being pleased with me than my bank account or my spouse or my kids. And this kind of hope is peculiar. When the things that stress everyone else out don't worry you, that stands out. And this makes people think, what is different about your hope than my hope? 
And Peter says, when this question comes up, you must be ready to give an answer. You have to be ready to give an answer. But when we do give an answer, we should do it with gentleness and respect. Meaning this, is that oftentimes you can speak truth in the wrong way and it doesn't mean anything. That what you say is almost less important than how you say it. And it's another thing people need to be reminded of. The gospel is already offensive. We don't need to put more barriers in front of people before them coming to Jesus. Because we're being rude. Last point, we see a greater perspective, a greater fear. Last point is this, we have a greater purpose. Now here's the question, why? Why? Why would we do this? What is our motivation, right? Kind of like the acting thing, right? What's my motivation? What's my motivation? What's my, what's my purpose here? Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What we see is ultimately that our suffering has an evangelistic point to it. Ultimately, look at this. Our motivation is the example of Jesus. But notice that Peter goes farther than simply saying Christ suffered, so you should too. He doesn't just say, hey, I know you're suffering, but take heart, Jesus also suffered. Now, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing that we have a Savior who can empathize with our weaknesses. That's a wonderful thing. But Peter goes farther by explaining not simply that he suffered, but why he suffered and what was accomplished by his sufferings. The first thing is this. What was the purpose? For sins. That he might bring us to God. Jesus is suffering on the cross. This is so important. If we miss this, we miss the entire gospel. Jesus' suffering on the cross was not simply an expression of love and self-sacrifice, which it was. But it was first and foremost to pay the debt for our sins. To pay the debt for our sins. You and I, because we have sinned against an eternal God, have incurred an eternal debt that we cannot pay. And Jesus' death on the cross pays the debt that we could never pay. It is substitutionary. That Jesus, when he was on the cross, took your sins and my sins, placed them on himself, drank the whole cup of God's wrath, turned the cup over, said it is finished. He took our place. Why? So that we can be made right with God. The goal of Jesus' sufferings was to bring us to the Father. So, what is the goal of our suffering? It is to bring people to Jesus. If you look at verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. What is this saying? Is this saying that it is God's will for the Christian to suffer for doing good? That's exactly what it means. Well, why would God allow that? Why would God do that? It's because there is a bigger purpose going on than just you. What is your suffering accomplishing? It's proclaiming to the world the sufficiency of Jesus. It's proclaiming to the world that you have a hope that's bigger than the things of right now. It's meant to point people to their need for a savior. And what does this require? It requires us to get over ourselves. If my suffering leads someone through the pearly gates uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, praise the Lord. Bring it. Do we want it? No. Do we accept it joyfully? Yes. Your eternal hope in the midst of suffering is the greatest evangelistic tool you have. Don't waste it. Now, excuse me, now I want to remember Psalm 34. 
So we kind of come to an end here. Psalm 34, you see it's going to come full circle. Remember what is Psalm 34? God, at the same time that he redeems the righteous, condemns the wicked. That in one act, God redeems his children, condemns his enemies. It's the whole framework of what Peter's been saying. We see this played out in two ways. One, in his death and resurrection, and then in the salvation of Noah and his family. As we continue on in this passage, we see that when Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the grave, it made a way for us to be saved and brought to the Father. In one act, Jesus brought us to the Father in salvation at the same time spoke condemnation to his enemies. That when Jesus rose from the dead, he brought us to the Father and spoke to the demonic spirits that I have the victory. That's what he's saying here is that he's taking a victory lap on the devil. And here's the beauty of it, is that as Christians, we share in the victory of Jesus, not because we did anything, because of what he has done. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, our greatest victory is also Satan's greatest defeat. We see this secondly as we close in the example of Noah and his family. While God's wrath is being poured out onto the wicked through the flood, Noah and his family were saved by finding refuge in the ark. They hid themselves in the ark. And this protected them from God's wrath. Likewise, what do we do? What is the, what is the mark of our Christian life? It's that we hide ourselves in Christ. And he shields us from the judgment of God. That just as Noah and his family hid themselves in the ark, we hide ourselves in Jesus. And baptism is a picture of this, that we identify with Christ. We identify with his death. We identify with his new life. And it is, here's the important thing that we need to understand. It's very, very important. That baptism does not save you. It is what it symbolizes that saves you. It is identifying with Christ that saves you. Here's the thing, is that so many people in this room and in this world are identifying with the wrong things. Ask yourself, what do you seek refuge in? What do you seek security in? What do you seek? Please understand this, is that the, the refuge of finances will not protect you from the wrath of God over sins. The refuge of your church attendance or your prayer life will not protect you from the wrath of God for sin. Only the ark of Jesus is enough to cover you and to cover me. So here's what I want to encourage you with. Don't leave this place trusting in anything but Jesus. If you came here today and you're like, man, I, I have my faith in all of these different things, or, or I don't even know what my faith is in. I, I don't even know where my hope is found. Let's talk about it. Because the assurance, the hope that we've talked about, and you're like, man, I want that. It is available. It's right here. Don't leave without it. How do we take it? We, we repent of our sins. We confess that we need a Savior. And we hide ourselves in the righteous, the righteousness of Jesus. If you need to talk to someone, talk to me. Talk to Pastor Ethan. Talk to our Next Steps team up front after the service. Go into the lobby. Talk to someone at the Next Steps table. Don't leave this place without knowing where your security lies. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time that you've given us to be able to 
to celebrate the victory we have in Jesus. Father, I thank you for the fact that you have defeated our enemies and that, Father, the sufferings we endure in this life are but a blink of an eye and that a million years from now there will be just a distant memory. And that, Father, that while we were your enemies, your word says that Christ died for us. And, Father, if you died for us while we were your enemies, how much more will you be there for us now that we're your children? God, if there's anyone in this room that does not have that hope, Father, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.